The Gospel reading from Luke. The Apostle said to Jesus, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink? Later you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So also when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, We are worthless slaves. We've done only what we ought to have done. The Gospel of our Lord. Friends, I'm delighted to be here and I want to thank Maggie Tucker who initiated this prospect of me being here. MJ, Jonathan, your pastor, and the people who have uh, engaged me over the weekend who have prepared the place, who have invited people, who have provided hospitality, who have transported me. It's marvellous to be here. People say, have you ever been in Texas before? I reckon I've been in Texas probably 14 times, of which three, if not four, visits have been to, to Houston. Now, we're reading a very uh, awkward passage, and we're reading it on Global Communion Sunday. It's not something which we do in the United Kingdom, But it's something which is very opposite because Jesus was a global person. In his ministry, he met people from at least three continents. He met people from Iraq. He met people in Egypt. He met people from Syria. He met people from Jordan. He met people from Samaria. He met people who came from the Roman Empire. He met people from Libya. And at the time of Christ... As Indian theologians now tell us, there were trade routes which went direct from India into Israel-Palestine. So when St. Paul says a line in 1 Corinthians 13 that most folk puzzle over, even if I give my body to be burned and have not love, it doesn't help me. We have no idea what that's about. It's not a Jewish thing to give your body to be burned, but it was a Hindu and a Buddhist thing. And in the Holy Land, at the time of Paul and Jesus, there were people from the subcontinent of India. So Africa, India, the Middle East, Europe all meet when Jesus is on earth. That's something which seldom is mentioned in the church and is seldom mentioned in my home country of Great Britain and particularly the nation of Scotland. Although we have had connections with the rest of the world for a long time, indeed we used to be quite friendly with America in a fairly intimate colonial fashion until a certain (laughs) war. When I went to elementary school, on the wall was a map of the world with a third of it painted pink because that was the extent of the British Empire. Some people reckon that at one time Britain dominated the lives of, of of almost half the global population. But we never really learned about that. We knew we were connected. The town in which I grew up, Kilmarnock, the only other man you might know from Kilmarnock is called Johnny Walker. He left a long while before I did. (laughs) 
But in Kilmarnock, we had industries which exported, we had industries which exported hydraulic valves to Africa, railway engines in the place where my grandfather worked, to Asia, uh, shoes all over the world, and carpets to South America. And I know this because for two years I was what we called a van boy. I worked in the summer for a haulage company, not a great big company, but every day we went to different parts of Scotland uh, to deliver goods. And sometimes on a Wednesday we would go from Kilmarnock to Glasgow, 20 miles north, where the ocean liners came right into the centre of the city. And we would have bales of carpet made by Blackwood and Morton, which would be loaded directly from our truck onto the boats going to South America. One of the things I remember in these visits to what was a big city was that we saw sugar refineries when we went round Glasgow. And there were also large buildings belonging to tea companies. And at the east end of the city, there were tobacco manufacturing companies. And never dawned on me that these actually weren't local crops. You know, we produce oatmeal, lots of it. You can, grow, you can grow oats when it's pouring of rain. But tea and sugar and tobacco, you need a little more sunshine. And it never ever dawned on me that we had these factories in Glasgow where thousands of people were employed in these industries. Nobody made the connection at all until relatively recently. The turn of the 20th into the 21st centuries. And a book published called Glasgow, or initially Scotland, and the slave trade. Well, we presumed that the slave trade was something which England was engaged with. We never thought the good Scottish Christian people would be engaged in that. But now we know. Now, in fact, we know that the University of Glasgow in its present building was financed by the proceeds of merchants who were involved in the slave trade. We owned a third of the plantations in Jamaica. And one of the outcomes of that has been that now we realise how much money was given to the university, the university is raising a comparable amount of money in this century and has signed a concordat with the University of the West Indies so that together they might not study the history of the past but look at the implications of that past slave trade for the present and for the future. And in the course of this, I've been interested to find out how our clergy, our Protestant Presbyterian clergy, were involved in endorsing this way of involving people being transported from Africa across the Atlantic were involved in preaching in the plantations and using the kind of text in the gospel which I read earlier about how who among you would say to your slave, do you thank your slave for doing what was commanded? This same passage and others throughout scripture were used in North America as well during the time of abolition by people in the Methodist church and the Episcopal church and the Presbyterian church. To endorse slavery, it's clearly something which from Genesis to Revelation is part of God's givenness. 
I'm amazed that my tribe particularly, Presbyterians, who believe they are built on the word of God, did not use their scholarship to allow people to realize that the word slave does not mean the kind of thing which we encouraged in transatlantic trade. The word of slave was used more often for an indentured servant, somebody who, to get out of debt or to make money, would give themselves into the pay of a wealthy person for five or six or seven years. The Romans had slaves like that. Uh, In Britain, we had people who were indentured and who were called servants. In the history of this country, as I've been reading recently, there were white slaves. And these were people who were indentured, who after serving five or seven years were given money and some of them were given up to 40 acres of land. What the Bible never endorsed was the transportation of people from Africa across the Atlantic against their will and in such a way that 50 million African people were involved in the transportation of whom perhaps 15 million ever completely made it here. What the Bible did not do was substantiate what the Dutch, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the French and the British did. But of course, if you are literate people, if you're cultured Westerners, if you're in power, then you have the possibility of shaping the Bible and what it says to suit your imperial purposes. And not just with the gospel. I noticed that Janice was very reticent to read this passage from Romans. (laughs) And I'm sure that some people were quite reticent to hear it being read. You know, all this stuff about let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. And the governing authority is God's servant to exercise wrath on the wrongdoer. And you must also pay taxes to the authorities, for they're in God's service. Amen? <laughs> we used to have an event, an evening event in Glasgow once a month. My colleagues and I ran it. And it began with opening worship, maybe ten minutes, songs mostly. And then there would be about a choice of six different workshops. And then we'd come together two hours later for closing worship. And one night, instead of having any songs at the beginning, a very soberly dressed colleague of mine stood in the middle of 200 people and read Romans 13, verses uh, 1 to 7. And then someone announced the range of workshops, one of which was a Bible study on Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. Normally, we'd have 12 people at a Bible study. 75 people were crammed in to discover what you'd make of this passage. Because, like the word slave, it's a passage which can be used to manipulate people into into obedience, which is not merited. Particularly in South Africa. This was a great, great text for people of the Dutch Reformed Church and of some of the English-speaking churches during the period of apartheid. We should remember, if we don't know, that apartheid began in theology. It did not begin in politics. It began in theology. People choosing selected texts from Genesis, from the Gospel, from Paul, and indicating that those who were in authority were there by God's delight and desire. 
and that all who were under them had to be obedient to them. And if you are an illiterate black South African or where, or one of mixed race or Indian, with little resource to academic learning, then you have to take what you hear, particularly if your church for the Presbyterians is a black Presbyterian church overruled by white clergy. It took very bold, independently minded theologians and pastors to begin to question this. One man particularly, Alan Busak, a Cape Coloured, who believed, having read the scripture, that the land he lived in should not be ruled the way it was, and began as a Calvinist to look at this portion of scripture, which Paul wrote and Calvin was very keen on, and then began to analyse it and said, yes, 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 okay, there have to be rulers, there have to be powers, there have to be authorities which are in the service of God, but... If they are not doing what God God wills, the only thing the Christian can do is to rebel. Now that was an insight that did not come from the scholarship of the Dutch church or the Dutch Reformed church or the Anglican church or the Presbyterian church. It came from the insight of one whose colour, language and servitude had never been deemed worthy of being given voice. And when the scripture was read from the other side, the underside, a new truth was discovered, that we should not pay obedience to those who are our political masters who claim to do the will of God if they are not doing the will of God. Then Christians have to speak. I was persuaded of this the first time I came to this state. It was 1995. It was a conference of the the um, world churches in San Antonio, and the, 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 it was the World Council of Churches. And the the conference was called Mission in Christ's Way. And as I mixed with people from all over the world and listened to people beginning to talk about how Jesus did mission. I began to realise that for me, as a white westerner from a historic pedigreed church, God was very small. And God would only be bigger and faith would only be more lively if I became open to the gifts, the insights, the culture of other people who believe but not under the same regime or history as myself. And more recently I began to look at Jesus himself and to see his method. I mentioned at the beginning that he has relationships with at least five, six, seven different nationalities. And that might astound some people, but it's perfectly true. He receives as a child gifts from men who come from Iraq. That's the wise men. He receives hospitality from people in Egypt who, when his own country makes him under threat, he goes to. He goes to the enemy territory. And there he finds hospitality. He's given a lesson in bad racist language by a Syrian woman and he takes it seriously. He finds his first evangelist in a Samaritan woman, which tribe the Jews hated. She goes and brings a whole village to Jesus. And another Samaritan, a leper, he finds a model of gratitude. 
because the Jewish lepers did not come back to say thank you, but the Samaritan leper did. He finds in a Jordanian a man who has been possessed by a demon. He finds there an evangelist who he sends back into the town which had rejected him to let people see what God could do and also to cure them of their fear of people who suffer from mental illness or who are different. He receives gifts from people who could have come from Portugal or Morocco or Spain or Greece or Italy because the Romans did not all come from Rome. The Roman legion at that time had 220,000 soldiers. They could never have all got into Rome. But any soldier in any of the countries that Rome had sway over could become a member of the army if they swore allegiance to the emperor. So the Roman about whom he says, I have not seen faith in all Israel, which I see in this Roman centurion, could have come from Morocco or Spain or Portugal. The only person who tried to stop the crucifixion to come to Jesus' aid was a Roman. She was the wife of Pilate, the governor. And then he's on his way to the cross, and a black man, a Libyan, Simon of Cyrene, helps them to shoulder his burden. Jesus never belittles these people because of their religion, their background, their culture, their race. He never asks them if they will believe all the things he believes. He never demeans them in public. He enters into a reciprocal relationship in which he grows as a human being because he's touched by human beings who are not like him. We all, I suppose, in childhood learned it's better to give than to receive. But friends, it's also good 